Welcome again. My name is Matt Howell, and I am cold, and I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Thank you for showing up in, you know, a very big day, Valentine's Day, and, uh, you know, the ice apocalypse happening as we speak. And, uh, but for those of you that are here, for those of you that are warm at home on your couch, drinking coffee and hot chocolate and fire going while we are here in the dungeon. We're, we're glad to have you online as well. Um, if we haven't met before, again, my name is Matt Howell, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer, regardless of how you find yourself this morning. If you're joining us from a place of joy this morning, or a place of sorrow, a place of belief, or a place of unbelief, if you are crushing it this week, or if you're just on the struggle bus, we are really happy to have you here. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that is we gather together to worship. We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit online or here in person. And uh, we do this so that we might rest in his great love for us. And we also get together throughout the week in small groups and individually over coffee or cocktails or bubble tea or whatever, and, and we try to remind one another of his great love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service and in forming relationships and pursuing justice and caring and loving for our neighbors because we want to reflect God's love for us. We, we dream of seeing our city flourishing anew. And so... That's kind of who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect his love. And uh, what we've been doing uh, throughout the season of Epiphany is we're looking at this New Testament book called First Peter. We're trying to answer this question, what does it look like to be the church in a culture that is, is you know, characterized as post-Christian? What does it look like to be the church in a post-Christian culture? And, and one of the things that Peter does to answer that kind of that question is he, he, he uses this metaphor that the church, we, we are exiles, we're sojourners, we, we're strangers here, which means this is not really our home. We don't exactly fit in here. We're, we're, we're a little out of place, a little different. We're strange. We've already seen that we have a strange identity, a strange hope. We have a strange story. We have strange conduct, a strange birth. And what I want you to see this week is we have a strange community. We have a strange community. And really, the, the passage that Mary Thomas just wonderfully read for us uh, is in many ways the high water mark of this whole book. It, it, is, it is a bright spot, maybe the brightest spot, not necessarily in, in this book, but it's one of the bright spots in the whole New Testament. This is such a rich, dense, amazing passage. I mean, we could spend months and months and months just unpacking what is here. In fact, um, there have been entire books written on just individual phrases from the passage that was just read. So, if, I mean, I feel a little irresponsible just doing a quick fly over this thing because there's so much going on here. I feel a little bit like a, um, like somebody who's, who's uh, overseeing a tour in Paris and like the tour bus takes you up to the Louvre and says, okay, go in, have fun, knock yourselves out. But the tour bus is leaving in about 25 minutes. So you're going to need to hurry. And you're like, oh my goodness, the, the Louvre, every room is packed full of masterpieces. 25 minutes doesn't begin to do this place justice. We're literally going to just have to run through the museum glancing 
at masterpieces as we go. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to sprint through this passage, glancing at a few masterpieces on the wall. In fact, we're going to look at four of them. We could have looked at 54 of them, but we only got 25 minutes. So we're going to look at four things. I want you to see this morning that as the community of Jesus, we are loved by God, inhabited by God, commissioned by God, and possessed by God. Doesn't, it's not what you think. We'll, we'll explain it. We're loved by God. We are inhabited by God. We are commissioned by God and possessed by God. First, what is it? let's look at this idea of us being loved by God. The church, the community of Jesus being loved by God. Uh, there's this really strange image throughout this whole passage that compares Jesus to a stone, like literally a rock. It's kind of strange. Look at verse four, talking about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone. You see this again in verse six, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Verse seven, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay, so what does it mean when it says Jesus is a rock? He's a stone. Here's what's going on. Uh, in Peter's day, if you wanted to build a building, what the builders would do is they would first lay down this rock called a cornerstone. It was the most important step and the most important stone of the building structure because what that stone did was it set the angles for the walls. And so the whole stability of the structure kind of all pointed back to how you positioned and, and built out your building from the cornerstone. And there's all these passages in the Old Testament that, that talk about the coming Messiah as if he is this cornerstone that gets rejected by builders, gets rejected by the world, and yet God still exalts, still honors, and still builds something amazing from. So the situation would kind of be like a group of builders, they're looking through all these stones, they're trying to build this thing, and they find this one stone, and they're like, this stone is a worthless cornerstone. This, would, this, would, this is this is, this stone stinks. We don't like this stone. We're gonna, we're gonna reject it. So they discard it, they toss it to the side. And then what happens is that stone not only becomes a stone that they end up tripping over and stumbling over, but then God uses to build this awesome, amazing structure from. There's a lot going on in this imagery, but here's the basic point. Jesus is this one that has been rejected by the world and yet he has been exalted by God. He's rejected and discarded on the cross as trash. And yet God still chooses to exalt him and build this thing from him. Now here's where this gets bananas. Because Peter says what is true of Jesus is also true of you if you are united to him by faith. Look at verse five. You yourselves like living stones are being built up. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, you're a stone too. This whole narrative is true of you as well. Jesus was rejected and guess what? You as the church, you're rejected. In God's sight, Jesus is seen as chosen and precious and guess what? In God's sight, you are seen as chosen and precious. Now, if you haven't picked this up by now, um, the Howell family is immersed and all things Harry Potter right now. So you're gonna have to allow me to make one more reference 
to Harry Potter. But if you remember in book one, even just the setup of the story, when Harry is living in the human world, the muggle world in, on Privet Drive, how is he treated? He, he's mistreated. He's, he's uh, you know, he's uh, neglected and starved and insulted, and he, he's, he's totally rejected in the human world. But then he goes off to Hogwarts, and what does he discover? When he gets into the magical world, he discovers he's a celebrity, Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows his name. He's walking through the halls. Everybody's whispering, pointing at him, looking at the scar on his head. He's, this, he's a big deal. In the same sort of way, Peter is saying, okay, as the church, you have been rejected by the world. But here's what you may not know is that you have been chosen and you are, you, by God, you are seen as precious in his sight. You are a celebrity in his eyes. It's not rocket science to know that the church is rejected by the world. You feel this, you experience this to some degree if you consider yourself a Christian this morning. I mean, like you think about the academic institutions of our day are never really gonna take the church seriously. Cultural institutions are are always gonna, at some degree, view the church with with some level of suspicion. Your views are a a little outdated, a little primitive, a little repressive. In fact, you you will be told, especially, uh, you know, in in this part of the city, um, that, you know, if you're a Christian, you're on the wrong side of history. You're gonna to need to edit your Bible to kind of keep up with the times. Your views are, are outdated. They're, they're, you know, you're a walking dinosaur. We understand experientially to some degree what it feels like to be discarded, not taken seriously, misunderstood by the world. What we may not understand in our heart of hearts is that the Lord sees you as chosen and precious. I mean, look at verse four. In the sight of God, you are chosen and precious. That language is amazing. Chosen and precious. I mean, think about this. You you might feel overlooked. You might feel ignored in your family or in your workplace or wherever you do life. And yet God is saying to you, he finds you precious and valuable. I mean, that language is almost so over the top, we don't even know what to do with it. But here's what, here's what I want you to see. The one person's opinion in the universe that truly matters thinks of you as precious and valuable. I know we gotta keep running through the museum and glancing at lots of other things, but at least I want you to let that settle in for just a second and ask yourself the question, how would my life look differently if I honestly believe that? If I honestly believed in my heart of heart, the king of the universe cherishes me, loved by God. All right, we gotta keep running. Let's glance at another masterpiece. The community of Jesus is not just loved by God, but the community of Jesus is also inhabited by God. Here's where things get mind-blowing. Look at verse five. Chapter two, verse five says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Do do you see all that temple language in there? Spiritual house, priesthood, spiritual sacrifices. Peter's basically saying this, every individual Christian is like a brick and a brick by itself doesn't really make a building, just makes a brick. 
So what God does is he gathers all of these stones, all these Christian bricks together, and he builds a temple out of it. Not a literal temple with brick and mortar and sheetrock. He's building it out of people. Now, what was the point of the temple? What what, what did temples do? People went to the temple because that was where God dwelled. People went to the temple to connect with God. It's where the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So here's what Peter is saying. God dwells here, like in the midst of us. God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, dwells here. Like that's, that's, that's another one of these like incomprehensible statements. Like what are we even saying? That's, that's, that's a, it's unbelievable. God dwells with us, not in this dark, cold dungeon, not in the vacant building across the street, but here amongst the people of God, the community of Jesus is where God has chosen to dwell. Now, if you start teasing out the implications of this, let me, let me tease out one little quick thing. Do you want to connect with God? Well, then connect with a church. Now, I know that in this day and age, the last place you would expect to find God is in a church, but that's what the Bible is saying. If you want to connect with God, connect with a church. If you have questions about God, if you're wrestling with this whole Jesus thing, the best place to go is to connect with a church. If you, want to, if you have faith and you want that faith to be strengthened and, and buttressed and, and bolstered, then connect with a church. Not necessarily this church. There's a lot of great churches in the city. But this is what Peter is saying. If you want to go where God is, then go to a church. I know this is like the, the, the emoji with like the head exploding thing. We got to keep running through the loop though. That's just one masterpiece we're just glancing at. We're, we're, we're loved by God. We're, we're, we're inhabited by God. We, we still got to get to the Mona Lisa. It's in here. So let's look at the third thing. Third thing, we are commissioned by God. Verse five, he refers to the community of Jesus as a holy priesthood. And then in verse nine, he kind of repeats the same idea. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now this is a revolutionary idea because Christians didn't have priests that offered sacrifices. Every other religion in in the day and age when Peter would have written this letter, every other religion had had temples and and priests. And, And so what you did was you would, if you practiced that particular religion, you would bring your offering, your animal or whatever, you'd bring it to the temple and the priest would take your offering and sacrifice it on your behalf to God. And since you kind of scratched God's back with an offering, God would then be expected to scratch your back. He'd return the favor or the gods would return a favor. And so you'd go to the temple, you'd offer your thing through the priest and you would be promised, you know, to have more children or you'd have a, you know, a big harvest or you'd win the upcoming battle or whatever. So in this day and age, imagine somebody with that view of spirituality in the first century coming up to a Christian and saying, okay, I don't really understand your religion. Help me understand it. Like, where is your temple? And the Christian says, oh, we are the temple. And the guy goes, okay, um, but like, where are your sacrifices? And the Christian says, oh, we are the sacrifice. 
You see that in verse, uh, in verse five. We, we offer our entire lives to God. We're living sacrifices to God. And then the other guy goes, okay, but like, where are your priests? And the Christian says, oh, we're the priests. You see, this, this, makes, this would make no sense to somebody in this day and age. This is so bizarre because what was the role of a priest? What did a priest do? A priest was basically like a middleman between God and the people. So the, you know, the priest would represent God to the people and also represent the people to God. They'd go to the people and kind of speak on behalf of God and demonstrate what God was like. And then they'd also go to God and pray for the people and demonstrate or, and, and offer sacrifices for the people. But here's what Peter is saying. We're all the priests now. What we are as the community of Jesus is people that represent God to the people, to the world, and people that represent the culture back to God and pray for the world back to God, which basically means this. Ministry is not something that just the pastor does, but it's something that we do as the community of Jesus. And you might think, okay, you know, do you know how much free time I have, pastor? Do you know how much free time I have to do this ministry thing? I've got a full-time job. I've got kids. I can maybe give a couple of hours a month to volunteer here and there, but like, okay, don't make me ask. Don't ask much more of me. Here's what I want you to see. If you begin to understand yourself as a priest commissioned by God going out into the world, then that has, that changes everything about how you think about your life. Because ministry is no longer just something that you do, it's something that you are. And so, again, we could tease this out in a million different directions. Let me just tease out one real quick. This radically changes how you think about your work, how you think about what you do for the bulk of your day and where you spend your professional energy, as it were. This means that whatever you do, if you're a lawyer, teacher, full-time student, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, nurse, whatever, that has just as much importance in the kingdom of God as being a missionary, as being a preacher, as being a Bible scholar, what you do radically matters. In fact, this is, this is an idea that Martin Luther really championed in the 16th century. And I, I included a quote in your handout at the beginning, but here's what he said. He says, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Here's what Peter's saying. We are commissioned by God, sent out as priests into the world to represent him and to represent the kingdom in everything that we do. This means... Okay, we don't include Bible verses on, it, on our Excel spreadsheets. It just means we make really good, accurate, faithful Excel spreadsheets. We don't put Jesus stickers on our artwork. We just make really good art. Don't you say this, 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 this is so freeing. It revolutionizes how you think about your life. It, thinks it revolutionizes how you think about your job, how you think about how you relate to your neighborhood. But again, we, we just got to keep running. That's one more masterpiece, and here's the, here's the you know, final one. 
As we've sprinted through the Louvre, here's the final masterpiece we're gonna look at. The church is loved by God, inhabited by God, commissioned by God, and here's the last, possessed by God. I know when, when you say it like that, it sounds like demon possession, like you're possessed. It's not what I mean. Just, I mean, it's another word for being owned. It's the language that you see in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See the same idea in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that verse 10 is a direct quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea. I included the Hosea verse in your little reflections at the beginning, the little quotes at the, at the, in your bulletin. What Peter is doing here is amazing. But if you're gonna see what he's doing, you have to understand that Old Testament story of Hosea really quick. So let me just explain it so you have some background. In the Old Testament, God comes up to this dude named Hosea and says, hey, Zoe, Hosea, you see that woman over there named Gomer? I want you to go marry her. BT dubs, she's gonna cheat on you a lot. And you're like, okay, that's very confusing. Why would God arrange a marriage like that? And what he's doing is he's using their marriage as this graphic illustration of his relationship with his people, that he is this pursuing, faithful, devoted husband and his people are unfaithful to him and leave him and betray him and break his heart and go chasing after other gods all the time. But Hosea does it. He goes forward and he marries this woman named Gomer. And Gomer lives up to you know, her expectations. And she starts cheating on him over and over and over again. And she starts having children in their marriage and their family from other fathers. And so she has this one daughter and God comes to them and says, okay, I want you to name your daughter, No Mercy. That's her name, No Mercy, because I'm no longer gonna have mercy on my people. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, No Mercy, come here, clean up your room. No Mercy, uh, clean up your breakfast. Then they have another son, and this son, God comes to them and says, okay, I want you to name that kid, not my people, not my people. Because he's basically saying, you have, so, you have been so unfaithful, you are now gonna be labeled and identified as not mine. We're done here. So here's how the story ends. As time goes on, Gomer goes from man to man to man to man, and she eventually leaves Hosea, and she gets um, so degraded that she finds herself as the property of some pimp who is selling her in a public market. And God goes to Hosea and says, okay, Hosea, I want you to go and chase down your wife again, and I want you to buy her out of, of the sex trafficking industry rescue her from this life that has been so destructive for her and bring her home. And so Hosea does. He goes and he, and he pays this high price to bring her out of this destructive uh, lifestyle and to bring her back home. And then here's what God says in that verse, Hosea chapter two, verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, and you are my God. 
Isn't that amazing? You see what they're doing. Hosea and Gomer are just dramatically reenacting God's relationship with his people. The community of faith has been labeled as guilty, don't deserve mercy, don't deserve to be treated as his people, and yet God's devotion for them is relentless. He rejects their rejection of them, of him, and he continues to chase them down with relentless mercy. And what Peter does is he takes that verse and that whole story and says, now that's true for you. That's true of me. That's true of us. We are the people that have relentlessly betrayed, rejected, denied, turned away from God to run after other lovers. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to keep rejecting me. I reject your rejection of me. And so I am going to come after you with relentless devotion. And so Jesus himself comes and he pays this high price with his very life to buy back the people that he loves. And on the cross, he gets treated as no mercy so that you and I could drown in mercy. On the cross, he gets rejected and discarded as not my people so that you and I could be brought in as the very people of God, brought home a people of his own possession, just like we saw with Heidi, a people who belong to him now. Now, you step back and you take all of that in. Let that settle in for just a second. If you are someone that trusts in Jesus, this means you are loved by God, chosen and precious in his sight, and yet will never be taken seriously by the world. You are inhabited by God himself, even right here in the midst of this echoey, cold warehouse. You are commissioned by God, sent out into the world as priests to change diapers and sell real estate for the glory of God and possessed by God himself, purchased by Jesus as an expression of his relentless devotion to you. So the final question is, how do you get in on all of that? How do you get in on that? Verse four, as you come to him. That's it. You just simply come to Jesus. You don't show up with your best intentions, You don't show up with your New Year's resolutions. You don't show up with your moral resume, your CV. You just show up covered in your guilt, covered in your unfaithfulness. And here's the good news. You who are Mr. No Mercy, you will receive mercy. You who are Mrs. Not My People, you will become his people as you come to him. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that though um, we do feel rejected, neglected, mistreated by the world, you still love us and you find us uh, beautiful and precious in your sight, that you would even choose someone like us. I pray that that would be good news for us this morning, wherever we find ourselves, believing or not believing, to know that in your heart of hearts, you have... You have an impulse to call people who betray you, your friends and your lovers. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.